One of the things that tumors are sort of known for is being very heterogeneous. And so parts of the tumor have really good blood supply and really good oxygenation. And parts of the tumor have really very little blood supply, very little oxygen delivery, but very little nutrient delivery too. I might be able to get oxygen or drug, for example, to one part of the tumor, but not get it to another part of the tumor. And that part of the tumor might see no drug or very little drug and become resistant to that drug. What if we tried to make these blood vessels more functional and get oxygen uniformly through the tumor and therefore get our drug that's delivered by the same blood supply uniformly through the tumor. And we found that exercise itself was as effective as single agent chemotherapy, which was sort of a, a life-changing finding for me. Um, and then that combining the two was more effective. This week's episode of the REACH podcast is sponsored by the Lamstrom Foundation which is a non-profit organization founded by Major League Soccer goalkeeper and Stage 4 Hodgkin's lymphoma survivor, Matt Lampson. The mission of the Lampstrong Foundation is to provide difference-making financial, emotional, and motivational support to cancer patients and families in all stages of cancer treatment and recovery, as well as to fund proven cancer researchers. So for more information and regular updates on the Lampstrong Foundation and what they're doing, go ahead and follow the Lampstrong Foundation on Facebook or visit lampstrong.com today. Hey, welcome to episode 32 of the Reach Podcast. Today's show, I'm chatting to Alison Bethoff, who is an MD-PhD and an oncology fellow at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. That is a mouthful. So if you know anything about either MD or PhD, both of them are really difficult to, to obtain, both of which take anywhere from four to six years apiece. So to have someone who has both is is really impressive. And Alison has a really good appreciation of both the research side with her PhD and the clinical side with her MD. So Alison has done a lot of really cool research in the area of exercise to modulate tumor biology. Uh, so there's some really interesting research that suggests that aerobic exercise can actually improve the vasculature of, of cancer tumors and help with the delivery of treatment. So Alison actually did some really interesting research where she compared aerobic exercise to chemotherapy versus both and found that aerobic exercise was just as effective as chemotherapy at slowing tumor growth, and obviously both of them combined were better. So you'd kind of be forgiven with taking that and going, well, everyone should do this and and exercise should be employed. And Alison does a really good job of actually explaining why from a clinical perspective, an MD perspective, we actually need to pause there and kind of go, if, if we are treating this like a drug, typical drug trials take years and years to actually get into uh, clinical practice because you need to figure out the minimum effective dose, the tolerable upper limit, are we doing anything that's going to cause undue harm, things like that. So it was just a great overall chat, uh, firstly about how exercise can actually modulate tumor biology, some of the challenges of getting that into actually human research and kind of how we can interpret different things from that. And then finally, Alison's uh, kind of perspective for as, a, as an MD-PhD who works in a clinic but also has a strong research and exercise background. So great overall chat and a really big thanks to Alison for joining us and uh, enjoy the show. Beautiful. So thanks a lot, Alison, for, for stopping by and chatting. Uh, like I said, I've been a huge fan of your work and, and uh, the research you've got going specifically with how aerobic exercise can affect uh cancer tumor biology um so before we get into that because it's a really interesting topic just you know md phd is is not an easy credential to get 
uh, and I'm sure it was a long road for you. So let's give the listeners a bit of a background into into how you got into this field and, and where you're coming from. Sure. So I actually grew up lifelong athlete. Um, I was a gymnast growing up and competed at Cornell for undergrad. Um, and while I was at Cornell, I got interested in the idea of muscle physiology and how exercise might affect physiology overall. Um, and somewhere in that process decided that MD PhD sounds like a great idea. So I went down to Duke to do my MD PhD. So, um, I did four years of medical school and four years of PhD with Mark Dewhurst. Um, and that lab, yeah, that lab is a, uh, tumor microenvironment lab. So really trying to understand mostly how oxygenation affects tumor biology and how metabolism affects tumor biology. And that was a big change for me. It was very different from what I'd done before. And I started working on this project looking at just sort of biomarkers of, of how oxygenation might affect response to chemotherapy. And um, at that point sort of decided that I wanted to move away from biomarkers into something that was more practical and more treatment oriented. And so I heard a talk by Lee Jones at that point, he was down at Duke, about how exercise affects tumor growth. Um, and he was just starting to delve into mechanism and trying to understand why, you know, he had seen this epidemiological effect, but really hadn't had a chance to delve deeply into the biology. And studying oxygenation and knowing what we know about cardiovascular disease and diabetes and all of these things with exercise, I thought, you know, this probably affects the tumor also. And uh, proposed a sort of a joint project, and we were able to get it funded. And for my PhD work, really looked at the effect of exercise on the blood vessels of breast tumors. So I am actually finishing up my PhD this semester. And if someone said to me, Congratulations, by the way. <laughs> if someone said to me, you've got to turn around and do another four years of medical school, I'd just leave. I'd go home, you know. So what, what was the motivating factor for you to do both, not just one or the other? Yeah, so I actually, I always knew I wanted to be a doctor. Um, I truly, I don't know how I knew because I don't have any doctors in my family. Um, but it was the thing I always wanted to do. And I actually, it was at Cornell that I found out that I loved research. And I, to be honest, didn't know that MD-PhD was a thing. Um, you know, I think a lot of people now grow up knowing that this is what they want to do, but not coming from a medical family. I didn't have that background. But my undergraduate research advisor really was the one who said, you know, you should do this and you love it. And this is how medicine really gets pushed forward is through research. You know, doctors are taking care of patients, but research is what's changing the field. So you definitely have a, a different appreciation for for the research and as than if you had just gone a straight clinical route. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, MD-PhD is unique. It's a challenging path, one, because it's long, and two, because you're constantly trying to balance being a doctor and being a researcher. Um, and that is difficult, right? You're competing for grants in the research world against people who are doing research full time and clinically, you know, there's always more patients to see. Um, but on the flip side, I think that it's 
really brings a unique perspective to the research about what are our patients actually thinking about? Or for example, you know, you'll go to lab meeting and they'll talk about a treatment that's four or five times a day, you know, for whatever a month inpatient. You're like, okay, guys, that's that's not something that that's practical. Yeah. Right. And so I think that MD PhDs bring us something a little bit different and also just that that translational bent that sometimes can get lost in basic research, right? We can get lost in the this is such an interesting question. Right. Yeah. But staring at patients one or two days a week, it's how am I going to bring that to them and make their lives better? Yeah, I really like that perspective of kind of bridging the gap between both worlds and you have an appreciation for the research. But like you said, too often, particularly in basic science, we get lost in that this is the f a fascinating area. And if we can look at this tiny area, change the yeah. field, then you go into a real life perspective and it's just not the case. And I think your research is a prime example of this in that there's some really interesting uh, research, but we're still, you know, a few steps away from kind of implementation of human work. So um, let's talk about this. Let's talk about kind of the the proposed idea that that exercise can modify tumor biology and vasculature, and and you know, first give us an insight into what how the tumor is to kind of even preface that hypothesis. So tumors and every tumor is different. So um, you know, one of the things that tumors are sort of known for is being very heterogeneous. And so parts of the tumor have really good blood supply and really good oxygenation. And parts of the tumor have really very little blood supply, very little oxygen delivery, but very little nutrient delivery too. And as you'd imagine, those parts of the tumor behave very differently. So one of the challenges over the years with treating tumors has been I might be able to get oxygen or drug, for example, to one part of the tumor, but not get it to another part of the tumor. And that part of the tumor might see no drug or very little drug and become resistant to that drug. And so for a long time, there was this question of, could we truly just cut off the blood supply to a tumor? And this was sort of Judah Folkman's life-changing work about angiogenesis. And it, it has worked to some degree, and there are some tumors for which this is, you know, drugs like Avastin, which are anti-VEGF drugs that cut off blood supply, are really, you know, beneficial in terms of treatment. But it hasn't quite panned out the way everybody thought it was going to in terms of, well, if we could stop the blood vessels from growing, then the tumor will just not grow and it will die off. And in fact, what we've seen in some tumors is that they become quite resistant because they develop hypoxia, and that hypoxia signaling triggers a whole set of other signaling cascades that actually leads the, to the growth of the tumor and escape. So things like uh, epithelial mesenchymal transition and trying to get out and metastasize to somewhere where the environment's better. And so there are a whole group of labs that have sort of gone back to the drawing board and said, what if we did the opposite? What if instead of trying to make these tumors more hypoxic, what if we tried to make these blood vessels more functional and get oxygen uniformly through the tumor and therefore get our drug that's delivered by the same blood supply uniformly through the tumor? And that work was really started by Rakesh Jain and using lower doses of things like Avastin. And we asked the question, we know that exercise does that for cardiovascular disease, right? It makes blood supply better in peripheral, you know, muscle and um, in the heart. And so can it do that to the tumor? And 
when we started, we had no idea. Um, but, but that's really what we did end up showing. That's really cool. So, you know, essentially you're kind of saying like the, the, the parts of the tumor where it's abnormally vascularized, the, the vessels aren't fully formed, the delivery of the chemo was the problem or, or the treatment is a problem rather than the dose itself. And so what you're trying to do is really normalize that vasculature, get a full circulation around the tumor to kind of stop uh, or or effectively deliver the chemo better. That's exactly right. And then, you know, I think this applies beyond chemo. You know, what we know is that for radiation to work, it needs oxygen. So radiation creates double strand breaks in the DNA, but to stabilize those double strand breaks and have a lasting effect of radiation, you need oxygen. And so since I have left them, that lab, my former lab is also working on using exercise to help radiation effects because you're delivering more oxygen. So I think this goes beyond just chemo, but I think it's certainly, you know, the, the concept is there. Yeah, and uh, kind of to highlight how potent this can be, um, I was reading one of the papers where they compared aerobic exercise versus chemo versus mm-hmm. a combination. Um, and if you're familiar, can you talk a little bit about that one and what they found and the implications of it? Yeah, so that was actually the sort of the main crux of my PhD work. Um, and that paper got a lot of attention because it's sort of a unique way to approach treating cancer, right? And especially in medical oncology, we think a lot about combinations of drugs, combinations of other things. And... Um, you know, so what we did was basically we my first experiment had been just comparing exercise versus sedentary in mice and looking at the growth rate of tumors. In this, we said, okay, well, we know that we have a very effective chemotherapy drug, which is cyclophosphamide, and we knew at that time what the maximally tolerated dose of cyclophosphamide was in mice. And so we gave those mice either exercise versus sedentary and either cyclophosphamide versus none. And we found that exercise itself was as effective as single agent chemotherapy, which was sort of a a life-changing finding for me. Um, And then that combining the two was more effective. And I think to me, combining the two being more effective was wonderful, but less surprising. But the fact that exercise itself was as effective as a chemotherapy agent, I think to me speaks wonders about you know, this being a, a true therapy. Yeah, and so talk about that, you know, because we, we kind of touched on how exercise can complement or be used to kind of uh, complement treatment. So how, if it's as effective as chemo, how is that then slowing the tumor growth or what are they kind of... The question, the answer is I, I actually don't know yet. Um, you know, we've been looking and working on figuring this out and I'm actually taking this work in a different direction now to try to get at some of that. Um, so... You know, there are many, many ways by which exercise could be affecting the tumor growth itself. Um, One of them is just oxygenation itself, right? That if we're delivering more oxygen, that there's less of this need or drive to grow and escape. Um, I think metabolism, probably, the more we're learning about tumor metabolism, the more we know that it's affecting how tumors grow and where they metastasize. And they think that there are probably huge changes in metabolism in these tumors that are in exercising animals. Um, And that's something I'm interested in delving into and sort of just starting to scratch the surface of with some collaborators here at Sloan Kettering. Um, But 
you know, as we've learned really just in the last, you know, five to 10 years that the immune system is one of the biggest mediators of how tumors grow, where they grow, what rate they grow, and whether or not they just go away. And so as we've learned more about immune tumor immunology and immune therapy in the last really five years, um, it raised the question of whether exercise is affecting tumor immunology. And we know that in healthy people, right, that exercise has profound effects on the immune system, right, that, you know, at low doses or low intensities that exercise is sort of promotes the immune systems or strengthens the immune system, but at high intensity can actually be immunosuppressive, right, it's sort of classic example of Tour de France riders getting pneumonia during, during the tour. And so my n newest hypothesis is that we can use that to affect the immunology of the tumor and possibly either have an anti-tumor effect itself and or work with you know, checkpoint inhibitors and other types of immune therapy to try to augment the anti-tumor immune response. And I think that may be at least part of why these tumors grow slower, even in the absence of another therapy. It's an interesting point about the uh, kind of the immune response, and you're almost referring to the inverted J curve that we always yeah. hear of, where yeah. you know at low doses of exercise you see an improvement in the immune system, but it gets to a point where it's immunosuppressive, and you're kind of reaching that overtrained state. Do you think during treatment, uh, particularly with treatments that kind of suppress the immune function, that curve is almost dropped down to the left, where? the doses would be different in terms of the immune response? I think it, it probably is. Um, doing that in humans is hard to figure out. As you can imagine, there are so many variables in the system, right, that, you know, sleep and nutrition and all these things also affect tumor immunology. And, and obviously for patients undergoing treatment, those things can be really variable. So I actually am trying to take that right back down to mice right now and understand whether or not dose and intensity have an effect. Um, and while, you know, as you mentioned earlier, it's not a perfect model for human, understanding whether or not in the absence of these other variables, you know, the intensity of exercise can modulate tumor immunity, I think is really important to then be able to model this in human. That's a, a great point. And the, the question always comes up and what's the point of, of immune models and, and comparing human versus preclinical uh, trials. And I think you made a really important point in, in working with those mouse models determines if it's even worth investigating in humans. And I think you also, one of the things I love about following your work is that you take a really uh, balanced and ethical approach in the translation of this work because I'm sure, you know, the media catches wind of, of your PhD product and say exercise is as good as uh, yeah. chemo and you kind of go you know slow your roll that's not the case so talk a little bit about the challenges of translating that into human research and how far do you think we are away in terms of looking at that as a human trial yeah so you know I, I think it's a really as you mentioned a really challenging idea because the the epidemiological data are there right and so we know that epidemiologically patients who exercise do better and I do think it's been really challenging over the years to decide, should we just take this down this clinical trial pathway and start, you know, modulating exercise and doing what we can and seeing what happens with patients? Or do we take this back preclinically and try to answer the question of the same way we do with any other drug, 
why does this work? How does this work? And then how could I intelligently combine that with something else or modify it? And there are a lot of people out there doing the clinical trials, and I think that's truly fabulous, to be honest with you. I mean, my co-mentor, Lee Jones, is doing both the basic and the clinical work, and that's um, been really enlightening to me to see how he integrates both. To me, I, I think of this being trained as a physician like a drug, right? And so to me, I might find a drug that works in the lab, but before I can actually give it to someone, I have to understand why it works. I have to understand the maximal dose. I have to understand the toxicity. And thinking about it that way means that I really need to get back and dive into the mechanism of why this works, right? And there's a lot of debate in this field, as you mentioned, about does the mechanism matter, right? We know that there's an effect. And I, I get a lot of feedback about this from people all over the world. Like, why do you care about the mechanism? We know that it works. And the answer is because we're going to reach a ceiling, right? We might apply exercise to cancer patients, and we are. I tell all of my patients that they should be exercising. But we're going to reach a maximal effect until we understand the biology and how we can intelligently combine that with another therapy or, you know, interval training, because at a certain point we maximize T cell response. I don't know. That's a really good point because you kind of highlight the, uh, or at least maybe a part of the physician mindset. Because, you know, I saw on Twitter a few weeks back where someone made the call for, you know, is that a point now where exercise should be prescribed? And you were kind of like, you know, hold up because of the point you just made in that if we're going to think about it as a drug, just like any other pharmacological agent, you've got to know the effects of different doses. You know, is there an upper limit? You know, we always worry about harm. You know, I think that people don't think much about that outside of, you know, the physician community. But, you know, there may be a dose of this that is harmful, right, that is immunosuppressive while we're trying to give you immune-boosting drugs. Or, you know, we worried when we first did my original experiment in breast cancer that we might promote metastasis with exercise, right? You're promoting circulation, and if there's tumor cells in the circulation, what happens if these grow faster? Well, it turns out they don't, and that's wonderful, but we didn't know that at the time. Yeah, that's a good point because I've seen uh, Lee make the same point in that, yeah, okay, aerobic exercise is great, but at the same time, on the other end, it may facilitate growth, as you talked about, in terms of angiogenesis. And if you feed that uncontrolled growth, then you're asking for problems too. Right. And so, from a particularly from a physician perspective, but I think for all of us, before we can get ahead of ourselves, I think we do really have to understand the biology. And, you know, we wouldn't, the FDA would never approve a drug that we didn't understand what the maximum dose was, right? And from my perspective, this is a drug. This is a treatment. And so we have to understand that. That's a good point. And it also highlights the need for collaboration between physiologists and physicians because when you're coming at it from that perspective, I have a better appreciation of what your reservations are, how we can come, you know, you you have reservations, but you're still kind of promoting exercise to your patients. So how can we combine you know both their knowledge and expertise in these areas to kind of come up with a plan until we get to that point where we understand the dose response issues absolutely you know i'm still 
you know, American Cancer Society, other groups are recommending 30 minutes of aerobic exercise five days a week. I routinely ask my patients if they're physically active and encourage them to do that and tell them that in, you know, a variety of types of cancer, we have good data that suggests, at least epidemiologically, that they will do better. And so, you know, there's been a lot of criticism that, oh, we're not pushing this forward. I think we are, and clinically we are recommending this to our patients, but with sort of the appropriate check of, we need to know what we're doing, right? If this is a drug, we need to understand biology. And that was another question I was gonna ask. Have you kind of seen more of an appreciation or awareness of exercise in cancer care amongst your peers? It's growing. It's been slow, for sure. Um, I'm really fortunate. I'm at Memorial Sloan Kettering, and first of all, people are exceptionally open-minded here about anything that might, you know, make cancer care better. Um, and Lee Jones was here a few years before I came here for my fellowship and had really sort of paved the way for people to believe in exercise here. Um, and we actually have an entire sort of department of exercise oncology here. And so at Memorial, people are definitely believers. But I've seen just in my time this really grow. I mean, AACR two years ago, there was an entire forum on exercise and cancer, right? And when I started my PhD, we couldn't get my first paper published because no one thought that this was real. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, to see that grow now at AACR, you know, and to have an entire forum of people talking about this. It's growing. It's going to take a while. I think one of the things, there's still this sort of divide between what clinicians are thinking about and what researchers are thinking about. I think in the research world, this has, people are starting to really believe this and understand it. And more people are picking this up and working on it, which is fantastic. In the clinical world, I think clinicians have been a little bit slower to adopt that. And I, there's a lot of reasons for that. You know, there's been a lot of promising therapies over the years that haven't panned out. And, um, you know, clinicians are slow until you can show them the randomized controlled data that proves a benefit. We're hesitant to give our patients more hope about something that we're not sure about. Um, so we've been sort of slowly getting the word out. Um, and I think that you know, especially here at Memorial at Duke, where we came from, people definitely are thinking about this, but it, it's definitely getting out there. I know MD Anderson has an entire center now looking at um, energy balance, so calories in, calories out, metabolism, etc. It's it's growing. It's, it's just going to take a while. Yeah, and I, I can kind of understand the you know, as exercise physiologists and people who study this, we understand the, the adaptations to exercise and how that physiology, the change of physiology, theoretically can affect these outcomes. But if you've got, you know, clinicians who aren't trained in that area, they're trained in human physiology, but they're not trained in the adaptation to exercise, you can understand that appreh apprehension. They're saying, well, you know, we haven't seen it. Right. And, you know, to be honest, there there are some holes in the clinical data, you know, that we're all working on fixing and everyone's, you know, working pretty hard on this. But, you know, if you go back and you look at the methods of a lot of these papers, they're not nearly as rigorous as what we would see from a phase one through three drug trial, right? People aren't using resist criteria to judge tumor response, et cetera, the way we would be required to for a drug. 
And so you can understand the hesitancy on the part of some clinicians who are saying, look, if you're, you know, the rigor isn't there in the clinical trial, I wouldn't prescribe this as a drug. So, and I'm not su maybe super comfortable with exercise or how to modulate exercise, right? Because physicians certainly aren't trained that way. You can understand some of the hesitancy to saying, you know, I don't know, I don't know how to adopt, adapt this for my patient, but also I'm not sure that the data are 100% clear yet. Yeah, that's a really good point because we had that conversation at ACSM this year and or last year, I suppose, in saying that um, there's people are starting to get a little impatient and going, you know, we have this evidence and, and a few people kind of said, you know, the field is still fairly new, you know, in terms of the, the, the quality of research, you know, five or 10 years, you've got the likes of Lee and Katie Schmitz who founded, you know, really pushed us forward. But there's an appreciation now that the, the trials initially were kind of starting the survivorship population because there was an apprehension. Then we yeah. just needed, you know, physical activity based trials just to show yeah. that it's, it's safe and it doesn't cause undue harm. And now we're getting to the point where we're starting to finally think of dose response issues. So as you said, in terms of global physical activity, it's safe and you're not going to cause any kind of injuries, but we still don't know the dose issues, the tolerable upper limit. So that's, it's a really good point and kind of urgent caution there too. Yeah. And I, you know, I've gotten a lot of the same feedback I know that you've heard and being pretty vocal about the importance of exercise for cancer patients, you know, on social media, et cetera. And at a lot of conferences, I've gotten the same feedback you have. Why are you so slow to do this? Why are, you know, why aren't we putting this forward? And the answer is we are pushing it forward, but we're pushing it forward the same way we would any other cancer therapy. Right? It takes decades to develop a drug. Right? And I'm not saying this needs to take, you know, 40 years to develop, but I do think that we need to be cautious. And I think we need to be smart because I, otherwise I think we will continue to have a lot of buy-in from the research world and the exercise physiologists and not a lot of clinical buy-in. And one of the beauties of what I do is I live in both worlds and I know what it takes to convince a physician or a clinician <laughs> to prescribe this for their patient, right? Because I see it every day. I, you know, I see patients right now one day a week, but, you know, I, I live in the clinical world too. And so we're trying to be much more thoughtful about what will actually convince the wider clinical community that we need to do this right? and we're trying to answer some of those questions and one of them is mechanism one of them is maximal tolerated dose and toxicity and one of them is you know adaptations what do we do if a patient's you know we know how to do I don't know how to dose reduce exercise for a cancer patient if they're having a certain symptom or right I mean we could guess but none of that's been validated yet. The, I mean, you, you kind of alluded to it with a couple of those points, but kind of what do you think are some important areas to move forward in to, to push the field forward? You know, if people are looking at beyond, you know, patients tolerate exercise, what do we need to do in terms of really driving the field forward and making an impact? So I think, you know, there, there's sort of two different roads here, right? There's the, the clinical road and then there's, science road and I think the or the translational science road I should say the translational science road I think it's pretty clear at this point there's a few things that we really need to do we're working at mechanism you know I'm working on immunology 
I think there are a lot of people still thinking about microenvironment and angiogenesis, which is fabulous. Um, metabolism is the great wild west that, you know, people are just starting to delve into and looking at a little bit of metabolomics and signaling, but really needs to comprehensively be examined. Um, so I think those are three of the sort of many hot topics in the basic science land. Um, but mechanism, I think to really bring this to patients, um, maximal tolerated dose toxicity and dose response, I think are just absolutely key. Um, and not just toxicity from the sense of, oh, we're not harming people, right? But toxicity on a much higher level, right? Are we immunosuppressing them? Are we causing cortisol surges from stress response that might feed a tumor, right? Like more detailed physiological parameters that actually, uh, you know, have profound effects on tumor growth and the host. Um, I think those are the questions that before we can confidently say, here's your prescription, we need to be able to answer so do you think your background as an athlete has played a role in your in your attitude towards exercise as a clinician? Sure, 100%. I mean, I continue to be an athlete. I, After I stopped doing gymnastics, I ran some marathons. And then, you know, I've been competing and uh, coaching CrossFit for many, many years now. Um, it certainly makes me more open to the idea that exercise has these profound physiological effects, right? I mean, I... I see it every day. I work on it every day, um, both myself as an athlete with my athletes and then in the lab. But I also think that clinicians are open to this idea, right? We've convinced people, for example, with cardiac rehab that exercise is life-changing. So I, I think there's some view, at least at some of the conferences that I've gone to from the exercise physiology community, that there's resistance among clinicians to this. And, and I think there might be some, but Clinicians are easily convinced that this is effective, right? We now have insurance approval and all of these things for, you know, cardiac rehab, for stroke rehab. So the ability to convince a clinician is there. We just have to have the data. Um, and I think for me, my background as an athlete has given me sort of the interest in doing this and in really pushing this forward and the dedication to keep doing this and pushing it forward when it's reached its challenges. Um, but I think other people are certainly open to it and non-athletes are certainly open to it. I think we just have to actually show them the data. So before I ask my next question, you're an MD working in a clinic, PhD research, and, and you're a CrossFit coach? I don't coach a ton, but I do coach. Um, so I used to compete a lot in CrossFit and then uh, I had a few injuries and with really with gymnastics that limited my competing in CrossFit. Um, but during my medical training, I kept training, but not coaching. So during residency, I kept training, competed a little bit, but didn't stop coaching for a while. But now that I'm back in the lab and have a little bit of freedom, I coach a few hours a week at the gym and it's mostly because I love it. And I love seeing people, you know, find exercise, especially as adults. I think in the CrossFit world, that's what's really cool is you have people who have never been an athlete start to feel like an athlete at 30 or 40 or 50 or 70. Um, and so it keeps you motivated. I was about to say, I mean, where do you find the time to sleep and <laughs> get anything done? Um, well, my husband works more than I do. So, 
Um, conveniently, we're both workaholics, so it works out okay. Uh, so you were kind of alluding to cardiac rehab there, and it brings an important question for me when you talk about uh, we have these billable codes or insurances bought into that. Um, from your perspective, I'm sure, I don't want to say cardiac rehab is simpler, but we have a much better understanding of the exercise on the cardiovascular system. Yeah. Do you think that's probably one of the issues with the same translating it into exercise oncology and that there's so many different cancers and there's different biology and, yeah. and how they Absolutely. you know work? Absolutely. You know, I think... this field is young as you mentioned and you know people in the beginning sort of approach this as you know breast cancer let's do the breast cancer trial let's do the colon cancer trial let's you know those were the two big in the beginning and now people are sort of branching out but these are different diseases right i mean completely different diseases and so for us to really implement this, it's going to have to be a disease-specific approval, the same as we see for every other drug in the cancer world, right? I think our best data right now are certainly in breast, and that's by far the most developed, and people are certainly pushing that forward. But, you know, colorectal, there's great data. We're doing some clinical stuff in prostate as well. Um, But the physiology of each of these tumors is different. You know, some are hormonally driven, some are angiogenesis driven, some are mutations that affect angiogenesis itself in the case of renal cell. So, you know, we can't think of this as one disease. That's, I mean, when you talk about that, for for example, I took a tumor microenvironment class a couple of years ago uh, just to kind of garner an appreciation for that. And I distinctly remember crying myself to sleep every night, how how challenging it was, um, you know, in terms of the different mechanisms to signal growth, the different, as you said, they're distinctly different diseases. And one of the most, I'm sure this is the case for you, one of the most frustrating, frustrating things for me to hear is uh, the lay person say, you know, either they have the cure or cancer is just a result of this and you know it, it's from a point of ignorance but i think you really do a good job of highlighting just how different prostate cancer is from lung cancer from from breast cancer and even blood cancers and how they develop and grow they don't have the cure they're not hiding away in a box you know it's it, i wish I don't it know. was you know i say all the time to my patients you know i wish someone would put me out of work right i'd find a different job Um, you know, no one's hiding the cure here. I I promise you that because I see patients, I, I grow to love my patients and trust me, if I had something that would help them, I do everything I can to give that to them. So, you know, I, I think this is what we see, you know, for example, a great example right now, immune therapy, right? Everybody's talking about immune therapy. I happen to be working on melanoma now and, you know, immune therapy is wonderful and has completely changed the field but then we look at some other tumor types solid tumors you know breast cancer triple negative breast cancer for example pancreatic cancer where immunotherapy hasn't made nearly the impact and you can see we're not just hiding the cure right it's not it's not there it's that something that works for x type of tumor may not work for y type of tumor and that comes back to exercise too that what works well for this type of tumor, maybe we may need a different strategy for a different type of cancer. Yeah, and so I've, this and this again coming from a, 
a really peripheral perspective, but I've been on a couple of, you know, when I'm presenting to oncology boards about doing our exercise trials, you kind of sit in on some of the presentations of future drug trials and, and they regularly talk about, you know, resistance to treatment and how the tumor essentially is, is smart enough to figure this out. And so let's talk about that a little bit about how, how that occurs and, and what the implications are in terms of, again, people are just, I think, misinformed in, in that type of mechanism and how it can be, chemo is working, now it's not, what's going on? So, I mean, at, at the end of the day, this comes down a little bit to natural selection, right? So in the simplest terms, you have a tumor, whatever type of tumor, and you have a drug that maybe works for that cancer, right? And you've now created a selective pressure for there to be some mutation that allows the tumor to grow and escape, right? So for example, a, you know, an easy example is, you know, tumor might develop a way to pump the drug back out after the drug gets into the cancer. It's not that the tumor's smart, right? These tumors are just individual cells. It's that they, cancer itself is prone to mutations and mutations are, you know, arise all the time. Some allow the cell to survive better and some don't. The cells that don't, they die off. But if a, a mutation arises that happens to allow the cell to pump out the drug that you just got into the drug, that cell will survive, all the other cells will die, and you will now have a resistant tumor to that drug. And this, you know, applies in many, many, many different ways. You know, there are different mutations that make a drug not bind to a cell or create a whole new signaling pathway by which the cell can survive going around that pathway that we just blocked. And so this is, it is complicated. It's why, unfortunately, all of us still have jobs, fortunately and unfortunately. Um, but it, the biology here is layers and layers and layers complex. The the higher up I go and the pe the people at the the top of the field all display the same kind of similar humility in in recognize that you don't know. You no. know, whereas you go onto Instagram or you go onto social media and there are you know, even professionals out there that say they have the cure or it's as simple as this and um I think you're doing a really good job of just highlighting the complexities of the biology of cancer and why we're facing so many challenges in coming up with treatment. And then you also, I mean, you talk about giving us the perspective as physiologists and how the the you can understand why the resistance is there from when you're looking at exercise as a drug, when it takes so long to go from preclinical to a full-on phase three trial in the pharmaceutical world, why would you not treat it any way different? And I think we're just kind of a little, as I said, impatient about well, we know it improves strength and body composition, so let's give it to everyone. You're kind of going, hold on, there's other factors at play here. And I'm not saying we shouldn't give it to everyone, because I think we should. But I think to move beyond, oh, it improves quality of life, and oh, it improves body composition, and to really understand or better use this as a therapy, we really do just have to understand the biology. And we've just been the same decades and decades and decades delving into the complexities of exercise biology that we have diving into cancer biology and then understand how those two really complex things work together. Um, and, you know, it, it's going to be incremental benefit. So listen, the, the one other thing, as you were talking about immunotherapy, because I'm not as familiar with it, and it is kind of fairly new. Um, sure. 
talk about some of the treatments and then you know your kind of knowledge of exercise how how might the two fit together or not um yeah. you know because i think people have an understanding of chemo and radiation but because immunotherapy is new to how it's prescribed what what they people go through yeah so immune therapy is sort of our newest approach to uh, an alternative approach to treating cancer it's not chemo it's not radiation it is systemic therapy um and the idea has been there forever that we could you know use the immune system to help us fight off cancer the practicalities of doing it have really emerged in the last, you know, five-ish years. So basically, the immune system is able to kill cells. That's the immune system's job, right? And so it kills bacterial cells or viral cells. And one of the, the challenges of killing cancer cells is that the immune system has a hard time recognizing that a cancer cell is self or not self. So for the immune system to kill a cell, it has to say, hey, you don't belong here. Right? And bacteria have certain markers on their surface and viruses the same, but cancer cells came from you. And so they look like your cells. Um, they're a bit abnormal, which sort of triggers the immune system to say, hey, I'm not sure you belong here. Uh, but because they have some of these self markers, it can be hard for the immune system to figure out which cells to kill and which cells not to kill. On top of that, cancer then we can say got smart or, you know, mutated and developed these other adaptations that actually help the cancer hide from the immune system. So, you know, I jokingly say this is like Harry Potter's invisibility cloak. <laughs> they have this invisibility cloak. And we have developed drugs over the last you know, decade or so that basically take that invisibility cloak off and let the immune system recognize the cancer cell through markers like CTLA-4 or PD-1. And now it can do its job that it's already good at and kill these cells. These immune therapies are FDA approved for a growing number of cancers. Um, so the first one was ipilimumab or Yervoy. Um, and now sort of their next generation drugs are target this marker called PD-1, um, which people see advertised on TV as nivolumab or Opdivo or Keytruda and pembrolizumab. Um, and we are just really now starting to understand how the immune system is affecting all of these different types of tumors. So these drugs first were approved in melanoma, then approved in lung cancer, and now a growing number of cancers. But it's complicated because there are many cancers that don't use this signaling pathway or that do, and for whatever reason, don't respond to our immune therapies. And so we're still trying to understand what makes some tumors respond and some not. For that same reason, we know that exercise affects, you know, the immune system, T cells that are circulating, which are the main sort of effector cells that make immunotherapy work. But we don't understand how certain doses affect T cells and how certain doses might affect delivery of these drugs, et cetera. And I, personally, my hypothesis is that there's going to be some interaction here and that we're going to be able to capitalize on that. I'm trying to figure out what that is, but it's in the early stages. It highlights the need for more collaboration between researchers and physicians. And we do come at this even during treatment and say, well, we can improve body comp strength, even immune function. But having your insight into the that level of biology 
can help us figure out those issues, can also help figure out relevant outcomes to the clinical world, sure. you know, because there will be more and more studies that come out and say exercise improves strength. And you're saying, well, we great, let's move beyond that and figuring out how to measure these markers. And of course, you know, research, resources, fund and so on and so on. But you do need that level of, of perspective and background to understand what's relevant to clinicians and physicians that's going to get them going. You know, that actually makes sense. Well, and I think, you know, these changes in body composition are so important. What we don't know is, is there signaling that results from that that changes the whole host, right? So, for example, a lot of changes in fat cells may actually have huge inflammatory effects, right? So pro or anti, and we're not really sure, right? So if we're changing body composition, are we changing inflammatory signals throughout the body? Maybe, right? And how does that affect immunotherapy? No one knows. And so these things require, you know, while changes in body composition are wonderful and we're all for that, and obviously preventing cachexia and all of these things are good, we need to understand the downstream effects of that. What a fascinating conversation from from your, I mean, incredible insight into the biology of, of both uh, cancer and exercise and I think it was a fascinating chat and um, I'd like to kind of keep bringing you back because I think your your knowledge in this area is huge in terms of just bringing people awareness to, to the complexity of cancer and how challenging exercise can be in this area so um, listen when people are looking for you how can they kind of keep up with what you're doing? Um, easiest way is on Twitter it's Dr. Betoff B as in boy E-T-O-F as in Frank M-D-P-H-D um, and that's where I post most of the sort of new innovative stuff on exercising cancer um, they can certainly look me up on Memorial's website um, but uh, you know if you want to hear what's going on with my research Dr. Betoff M-D-P-H-D at Twitter so listen, Alison, I can't thank you enough for your time. I thought it was a great chat and uh, I'm sure we'll hear from you soon. My pleasure. I am happy to come back anytime. This is really a pleasure.